everybody. Welcome to episode eight of Hearing Us Believing. My name is Andrea. And my name is Tanisa. And this is the podcast where we discuss different topics that center around our Catholic faith. So like always, just wanted to make a quick disclaimer that we are not experts, we're not theologians, and we do not speak on behalf of the Catholic Church. We're just two ordinary sisters that really find these stories interesting and wanted to share them with you. So Andrea, what has been new? Actually, before we go into what's been going on with us, with oh, yeah. catching up mm-hmm. with each other, um, we need to make a little correction to last week's episode. We had mentioned that Judas was a disciple, which he was, but we need to make the correction that he was an apostle. Mm-hmm. One of the 12 apostles. So I guess it slipped both of our minds, um, like the difference between the two, and we, we should distinguish that. Uh, mm-hmm. But a disciple is a student versus an apostle is someone who goes and teaches others. Yeah. So you had mentioned that Jesus had sent out the 12 to teach others. So that makes them apostles because also they were chosen by Jesus Mm -hmm. to teach others. Exactly. Like you said, he was chosen. They were all chosen for his mission. Correct. So yeah, we just wanted to make that quick disclaimer. We had made that mistake. So yep, all good. Now, um, what's new with me this week? My back really hurts. Um, <laughs> had to shovel snow this week, which is no fun. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, other than that, I think it's pretty fine. Um, what about you? Well, I have very exciting news. It is this day that the podcast comes out is my favorite day it's my birthday so when you guys are listening to this if you're listening to it the day it released um it's my 25th birthday happy birthday to misa thank you i wanted to make sure i put that out there real quick and so everybody can send me happy birthday wishes and yeah just want all the intent all the attention how does it feel to be part of the quarter century club now pretty good pretty see age never really bothered me or has concerned me too much um except for 24 24 i felt really really excited about and i felt like that was the only one that held weight to it i guess well it was also the same year you got married so i mean you had a lot of stuff coming up for that year when you turned 24 well yeah like like I, i yes exactly i got married um but I guess the way how I thought about it was like when you are 21, which I guess is like the after 18 is like the big quote unquote milestone because you can legally drink. Um, Mm -hmm. But when I turn 21, I'm like, I'm still a kid. I can drink now, but I am still a student in college. Don't have my life together. When I turn 23, that's when I graduated college. I'm like, okay. I'm in the adult world, but I'm not really an adult. I barely graduated college. I still feel like a student. You still feel like a kid? Yeah, I still felt like a kid. Actually, no, I graduated when I was 22. So then 23, that's when I started working, was still a kid. And then 24, I had already been working like a full-time job in corporate America for for a whole year. Um, I was paying my bills. I was saving money. I was doing my thing. I'm like, I... This year, this is year when I'm officially an adult. And like you said, I was getting married that year. I'm like, this is the year that I will have my together. And then because my birthday is January, like the very end of January, January 31st, like 
what a month later <laughs> everything was shut down yeah um, basically all of my thought of oh my life is together just went down the train and uh yeah so now I'm now I'm gonna be 25 and I'm very excited about it very happy uh just don't feel um any type of pressure which is which is nice I'm glad that you don't feel any pressures. You're enjoying life. You don't feel your age. And that's that's great. You got to remember too, age is just a number. You know, it's all about how you're feeling. And you and if you feel great, that's all that matters. How do you feel when you turn 25, Andrea? Because obviously you are older than me, um, which thank you, by the way. I, I don't know if anybody else who is like the younger sibling or has just in general, maybe an, a sibling that's older than them. I honestly don't think I will ever feel old because I'll be like, oh no, like Andrea's older than me. I'm not old. She's old. So uh, thank you for that, Andrea. It makes me feel just so much better. It's okay though. You're married. You're going to have kids before I do. So you will age faster than I will. So thank you for that. (laughs) So it balances out. It balances out. But back to your question, when I turned 25, um, I feel great. Like, I didn't feel bad. Again, I didn't feel my age. Um, I still don't even feel my age. Like, mentally, I f- still feel like I'm maybe 24 still, maybe. I don't think mm-hmm. I look my age either, but that doesn't matter. Um, nah, I feel good. I still feel good. I'm glad. Hopefully that feeling continues for us for a very long time. So, Andrea, what are you going to be uh, talking about today? Today? Today, I am going to be talking about the Aix-en-Provence possessions. I Excuse me if I didn't say that correctly. Again, I do not speak French, but this possessions case took place in the south of France in 1611. And what about you? So in honor of uh, my birthday, because <laughs> mm-hmm. again, that's all that matters this episode, um, I'm going to be talking about St. John Bosco, whose feast day is January 31st, my birthday. So I've always uh, really liked St. John Bosco. I've seen um, I've seen a movie about his life, and I tried to look it up, and I couldn't find it because... I just couldn't, I, I know I saw it, but I don't remember all the details, and there are quite a few movies about him, um, so I just recommend watch all of them. I'm sure one of them is the one that I saw, um, so yeah, I'm going to talk about him today. All right, sounds good. Well, I went first um, last time, so this time it is yours. Yay. You have the floor. Awesome. So, like I said, I'm talking about St. John Bosco, who was an Italian priest, a teacher, and a writer in the 1800s. So during during a time of a lot of suffering in Turin, uh, Italy, uh, from a consequence of, you know, industrialization and urbanization, he dedicated his life to the betterment and education of juvenile delinquents and poor and homeless youth. He also developed a teaching style called the Salesian preventative system, I believe that's how you pronounce it, um, that was based on three pillars, love, religion, and reason, rather than punishment, which was back in those days like the primary tool for education and reformment. It was very uh, strict. Yeah, very strict, very like heavy hand of the law, very, uh, very extreme, I guess. Okay. He is the patron saint of editors, 
publishers, school children, juvenile delinquents, and magicians. Magicians? Magicians. I like that one. That one's always my favorite. I'm like, oh yeah, you know, like editors and children, like that one makes sense, but magicians as well. That one is a... Threw me for a loop. Uh, that doesn't make sense either, though. No, it does. It does. It'll make sense. You'll see in a bit. Okay. Yeah, trust the process, Andrea. So St. John Bosco is also known as Don Bosco. He was born on August 16th of 1815 as the youngest son of Francesco or Francisco. I guess if it's Italian, it's Francesco, right? Francesco Bosco mm-hmm. and Margarita Ochina, um, who also his mother, Margarita, is um, venerated today for her charity and life of heroic virtue. So just so you know, their devotion runs in the family, clearly. Mm-hmm. After the age of two, the father passed away, leaving John Bosco and his two older brothers and their mom in a life of poverty. So John attended church regularly, um, and when he was not in church, he was helping his family, you know, grow food and selling and basically just trying to live day by day. But even though they were very, very, very poor, his mom would always still find ways to, you know, share what they had with uh, people that were homeless or even less fortunate. So his mother really um, instilled in him that value of charity and and also you know their religious devotion Mm -hmm. when john was nine years old he experienced several vivid dreams where a crowd of boys were swearing as they played and among them were uh two people a magnificent majestic man and woman so the man spoke to him said that in the meekness and charity he would conquer his friends Then the woman spoke and said, Be strong, humble, and robust. When the time comes, you will understand everything. A little vague. Yeah, pretty, pretty cryptic, I guess. It is pretty vague, but um, it's it's all going to tie together, which is what I always love about these stories is, you know, those messages that seem so, like, like you said, vague and ambiguous is really just going to, it's the epilogue to it all epilogue that's the end prologue 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 okay prologue is the beginning prologue i was thinking it's like is epilogue the right word and i'm like yeah yeah that is epilogue is the end it's the end it's the afterwards oh my goodness oh well as i said we're ordinary sisters we make mistakes we stupid sometimes (laughs) clearly as we made a mistake from last episode too yeah oh geez yeah. Well, you know, it wouldn't be us if it wasn't rough around the edges. <laughs> true, true. Anyways, back to uh, St. John Bosco, who's way more perfect than I am. Um, not long after John experienced this dream, he saw a traveling circus troupe and was completely mesmerized. Um, he just was captivated by their magic tricks and the acrobatics, and he decided to actually learn some of these tricks and would use them to like get, uh, get other people's attention. So that's why he's the patron saint of magicians. Oh, uh, okay. So that sleight of hand kind of like, oh, now that I've got you captivated, pay attention to me. Exactly. He 
he loves like the way that they were they had this like magnetic draw so mm-hmm. he he learned those type of different like uh like I guess, yeah like uh, tricks so that he could get people's attention as well and he would use that opportunity like for example um he would stage a show for the kids that he played with so like his actual friends he would do a show and at the end he would recite the homily that he heard that sunday and would invite them to pray with him okay i approve (laughs) he was like tricking them like oh look at this cool thing i can do with this coin by the way have you heard of our our savior jesus christ (laughs) and it's it's really i just think that's so entertaining it's very clever of him (laughs) it is it is a very clever move okay yeah so from from doing this john felt a calling to becoming a priest but you need an education to become a priest which due to their poverty just wasn't viable for him but he did find a priest um, in his community that was willing to kind of take him under his wing and teach him things. And his older brother was actually really, really upset by this. He wanted John Bosco to be a farmer just like the rest of them, even as going as far as like beating him up and, and whipping him on one account, saying like, you are going to be a farmer like us, like let go of this idea of, of being a priest and, and leaving. But this didn't, this didn't stop him. As soon as John Bosco could, he left home. He went to find work and was hired as a farm laborer at the age of 12. So he worked at a vineyard for two years. And there, he met a priest who was willing to help him on his mission to priesthood. And his name was Father Joseph Cafaso. Again, sorry, I, we always do like international stories, and so we, oh, I'm always scared that we're mispronouncing their names. But we'll eventually get to Spanish names. But <laughs> I I don't speak Italian either, so if you say that's how it's pronounced, I will believe you. Thank you. So Father jo- uh, Joseph Cavasso um, would actually later also be recognized as a saint for his ministry to prisoners and the condemned. So Saint John Bosco has been surrounded by just amazing people his entire life helping him on his mission in 1835 john was was finally able to enter the seminary and was ordained as a priest in 1841 and that's when he is assigned to turin um which i was wondering andrew have you been there i was thinking that you had been when you were on your trip Mm. Turin, Italy. Uh, Italy. It's it's like I believe west of Milan. Uh, isn't the Shroud of Turin there? Yes. Yes. Then yes, I have been there. Awesome. So that is where he was assigned. Um, I I knew I I was so positive. I'm like I think Andrew's been here. So um, before I hop into the rest of my story, Andrew, do you remember what it looked like? Can you like give us like a visual? Honestly, I think I fell asleep on the bus. I don't really remember the area. I'm not going to lie. I was 15. All right. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah, I can understand. Well, no worries. Just to give you a maybe an imagery of what it looked back then in the 1800s. It was in the midst of the of um, industrialization. And that led to widespread poverty and worsening slums. So mm-hmm. it wasn't um, that n- nice, perhaps. 
as it mm-hmm. is today. Um, but while while he was there, he would visit uh, prisons, and Father Bosco noticed there was a large number of boys between the age of 12 and 18 that were imprisoned in these awful conditions. And it just, it moved him to act. He went to the streets where the at-risk youth would play and used his talents as a performer to get their attention and share his message. So again, he he's using what he's learned from before, is, knows how to captivate his audience and use that for his his mission, which is to, you know, save these, these young boys. Okay. And when he wasn't preaching, he was looking for work for them. So for these boys that needed to earn a living, he was going out and negotiating jobs for them, trying to like make the connections. And his mother, Margarita, also helped him find these kids um, lodging. So somewhere they could live instead of being on the streets. And by the eighteen, by the eighteen sixties, the two of them, Saint John Bosco and his mother, were lodging about eight hundred boys. So they were really, really taking care of so many, like kids, um, during this time. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, Father Bosco was negotiating, like jobs for some of the kids that needed work, and he actually was negotiating reforms for the boys that were employed as apprentices. So I had, I didn't know this, but apparently during that time, it was really a common problem uh, that apprentices were being abused. And basically the masters, quote unquote, would have the apprentices do menial work that had nothing to do with what they were trying to learn. Um, making them work extremely long hours, not giving them breaks, sometimes not giving them food or rest, um, and sometimes even being physically abusive towards them. So they're like slaves. Exactly. Like it was the opportunity to, to just take advantage of them and write it off as being, oh, well, they're learning the trade. Father Bosco negotiated the contracts that completely forbade, you know, all of that abuse, plus gave them um, feast days off so they would be able to, like, attend church and have rest. And also, if Father Bosco thought that um, one of the boys would make a good priest, he would encourage them to consider the vocation of the priesthood and offered them guidance and preparation, just like how he had received in his youth. Mm-hmm. But, of course, no good deed goes unpunished. Some of the parish priests started accusing him of stealing the boys from their parishes and nationalist politicians. uh, And even some clergymen saw that this group of 800-plus young men as a potential recruiting ground for revolution there's a lot of um, civil unrest in Italy during this time. So mm-hmm. there is a lot of tension. And because you have to remember, like I said, there is a lot of poverty during this time. Like Tensions are very, very high. So the fact that this one man is doing so much in, in gathering such a large amount of people, like, of course, it's, it's going to be scary for people who are far more cynical or feel like they might have something to lose from from his work um but but yeah so not only not only that was a problem 
Mm-hmm. The chief of police was actually against him too. So he did not like that he was preaching to the boys in the street and claimed that it was, you know, all of this preaching and all of this missionary work was actually just political motives and on several times would interrogate um, John Bosco and, you know, just basically harass him, but no charges were ever made against him. There were, however, several attempts made on his life, including um, a near stabbing, bludgeoning, and shootings, all of which John Bosco survived. That's that's impressive. That's good. I remember when I was watching the movies, um, there's a scene where I think he was about to get stabbed and I think like a dog came in and like rescued him. Um, which is actually one of the miracles associated with him. I, I wasn't really planning on sharing it because I just personally thought it was really cute. But um, Please share. I want to hear this. Yeah, there was a, a dog um, that would like always follow him around and mm-hmm. would protect him. So when uh, there was an event where someone was trying to like stab him and, and kill him, the dog came in and, and just attacked the perpetrator and protected St. John Bosco. And he did that on multiple times. And the dog would never be violent to anybody else or, like, to innocent people. Like, it, it was only for protection. Oh, it's a little angel, a little guardian. <laughs> exactly. He was a guardian angel. And he never, like, would beg for food. He was never, like, a pest or anything. It was just, it was just to protect him, which really makes me, like, very... Um, happy and like warms my heart because total tangent total side story but um when me and my parents or our parents we went to Medjugorje um we on on, like the church grounds I I guess Mm -hmm. there are a lot of uh stray dogs yeah did did you also experience that too Andrea seeing a lot of stray pets uh stray animals yeah, dogs. Yeah. Yeah, they, they just stay on, on like, the, on, like, the, by the church. Um, well, mom, the day that we were going to leave, she wanted to leave um, some letters that some of her friends had uh, charged her with, being like, hey, can you please leave this at the altar of the Virgin Mary at the church in Medjugorje, um, which I can't remember what the name of that church is. Do you, do you remember, Andrea? Uh, it's, uh, Church of, um, St. James. hmm So St. James. Yeah, good memory, Andrew. Way to go. Yeah, thank you. I really want to go back to Medjugorje again. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. It was the most peaceful place. And I know either you or I will, will do that topic. I think we're going to have to share that one, honestly. Yeah, we'll probably have to share it, and it'll be a whole episode dedicated to it. But um, anyways, the thing is that the day we were going to leave, mom wanted to drop off those letters because she hadn't had a chance or I guess had maybe forgotten to do it beforehand. Um, But she only had time to go like really early in the morning. And like our parents are always like awake by like four in the morning or five in the morning at the very latest. Mm -hmm. So she she was supposed to wake me up to go with her, but she didn't. She decided to go on her own. So she woke up early. It was still dark and just walked out of the hotel and started walking to the church which 
granted, Medjugorje is a very beautiful, peaceful, and safe town. But I mean, like, we don't recommend that for anybody if you're traveling in a foreign country and a town you are not familiar with, even though you've been there for a few days. Do not do this. No, do not do it. But you know what was beautiful about it? A dog came up to mom, one of those dogs that were with, that had been staying at the church. Yeah, one of the strays. You know, one of the stray dogs. Like, met up with mom, like, maybe a block away from our hotel, and walked with her. The entire, like, however many blocks. And he would, like, sit and wait if there was a crosswalk. And then would keep going and, like, turn and make sure mom was following. And just guided her all the way to the church. And then when she got there, uh, he, he, like, ran off. And he was like, okay, you're here, you're safe, bye. Isn't that so sweet? It's like... Yeah, that's also very sweet. Also a little guardian angel for her. Like, hey, I'm going to make yeah. sure you get there safely. But also, I don't want you to get lost because you're capable of that, too. Yeah, exactly. I just love that. I love that it was being, like, exactly you said, like you said, a little guardian angel for her. So this story with St. John Bosco kind of reminds me of, of a similar situation. Um, but, but yeah, back to our guy. In 1859, he established the Society of St. Francis de Sales, um, also known as the Salesians of John Bosco with the purpose of carrying out his charitable work, uh, working with boys on their faith formation and keeping them out of trouble. Um, And to this day, that organization still exists. It continues to help children and the needy all around the world. And for the rest of St. John Bosco's life, he did dedicate his his life and mission to uh, helping at youth risk in, in, um, in his town. He passed away on January 31st of 1888 at the age of 72. And that is the story of St. John Bosco. All right. Thank you very much. That's a good story to me. So, yeah, it was was a quick and easy one, but it's honestly, he's one of my favorite saints. He did so much for, for, you know, the youth um, in Turin and like I said, his legacy still continues to this day. It's still helping children all around the world. Um, and I think that's just really powerful, you know. And he was just so, such an entertaining guy. Like, I think that's just my favorite part is that he, he knew tricks and would put on a show and had like a – just drew people to him. And I just absolutely love that. He was a magician at heart. Yeah, exactly. Like, I feel like if he somehow didn't find the priesthood, he would have dedicated his life to probably being in a circus or something. Um, so, so yeah, he was a very fun guy. That's awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that, Tamisa. That was a good story. Um, okay, so moving on to possessions. Yeah, I know. Whew, okay, I'm ready. Tell me. It's not super scary, I'm going to let everybody know it does get a little um, uncomfortable, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. I will give a disclaimer when we get to the point where you might not feel comfortable with what we're going to be talking about, especially about torture. I will let you know and I will edit in that timestamp. Okay, so just letting you guys know. Cool. So as I mentioned, I'm going to be talking about the Aix-en-Provence possessions. Just so you have a visual as to where the story takes place, 
Aix-en-Provence is 26 kilometers or 16.2 miles north of Marseille, France. You can picture that. Okay. So straight up north. Okay, cool. The main characters in our story are Father Louis Gaufridi and Madeleine Demandol. I don't know how you say that. We're going to stick with Madeleine for the rest of the story. And also Louise Capo, and we're just going to stick with Louise. Okay. So in 1609, Madeline, who's approximately age 15, who supposedly comes from French aristocracy, entered the Ursuline convent at Marseille. It was at this convent where Father Louis Gaufridi was the parish priest and spiritual director. And mm-hmm. it was here where Madeline confessed to the mother superior that she had been intimate with Father Gaufridi. Oh, oh dear. I know. Horrible. We do not approve. So Mother Superior then sent Madeline to Aix-en-Provence because they had another Ursuline convent there in that city. Mm -hmm. And she sent her there to put some distance between Madeline and Father Gaufridi. And it was there in Aix-en-Provence that summer when Madeline began to show signs of demonic possession. Oh, no. She showed symptoms of hysteria. She would shake convulsively and, in a fit of rage, destroyed a crucifix. Oh, okay, that's really scary. You find that really scary? <laughs> it's going to get worse. <laughs> it's going to get cringeworthy later. Oh, jeez. I just, I can't imagine how, like, scary that would be for her because, like, you're in a new place. Um, obviously, she probably felt very guilty or upset about what had happened and now yeah things are not going well plus you gotta think too she's like around no 15 oh yeah she's wait a young girl well i totally missed that i knew she, i knew it started with her being 15 for some reason in my mm-hmm. mind i'm like oh it's been a few years uh, no. oh no this is still the same year this she's is still a child. 1609 she's a baby oh, so but here's the thing though before long the other nuns in the convent also began to show signs of, of uh, symptoms of possession. So this was becoming contagious. Oh, no. There were about eight in total at the end who were all possessed. But the worst one was Louise. Uh-huh. She would speak gibberish and her body would contort into weird positions. Oh, gosh. Okay. Okay. That I know it's still going to get worse, but that just like give me, gave me like chills down my spine. Yeah, I know. It, it kind of creeps me out, too. <sighs> Uh, so the parish priest there at Aix, um, Aix-en-Provence tried to exercise the nuns and ultimately couldn't. So they sent for Sebastian Michelis. Mm-hmm. Does that name ring a bell to me, sir? Because it should. No. If you remember, he was previously mentioned in episode four when we talked about Leviathan. <gasps> he was the Dominican prior and French inquisitor. And when he was exercising a nun, he found out about the demonic hierarchy. Is it this nun? It doesn't say. <laughs> we do not know. I'm going to assume yes, and I will tell you why later on. We'll explain later on. Yeah, I have a sneaking suspicion. Oh, jeez. Yeah. None of my research would say specifically who the nun was. Not even his book explains who the nun was. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to say it's highly likely Madeline. We're going to make the executive decision. I'll let you guys make your own executive decisions. I'm not going to say 
it is her, I'm saying it is likely her. Anyway, so in the winter of 1610, the two nuns, Madeline and Louise, were subjected to more exorcism attempts. And of course, the signs of demonic possession worsened. Louise would speak in a deep voice. Mm -hmm. She claimed to be possessed by a devil named Varen. And again, from episode four, we talked about how Varen was a prince of thrones Mm -hmm. and he tempts men with impatience. Mm -hmm. Madeline had it a little slightly worse, I think. Uh, She would have visions. She would twist into indecent postures and would scream obscenities Mm -hmm. by telling graphic tales of sodomy and eating children during witches' Sabbaths. She also claimed to be possessed by Astaroth, Asmodeus, Bareth, and Beelzebub. Oh, jeez. Quite a few of those names uh, ring a bell. Yep. Every single one of those names we mentioned in episode four. Yeah. After this, the Inquisitors started to take a closer look at Father Galfredi. Mm-hmm. He had already been summoned up from Marseille to Aix-en-Provence to help exercise Louise, but they took him into custody. Now, here I'm going to put in that disclaimer again. If there are children in the room, you might want to stop listening. Mm -hmm. Uh, Same applies if you're uncomfortable with talks of torture. I will edit in a timestamp, as I mentioned before, for when it is safe again. Okay, I'm ready. It's safe again at 35 minutes and 10 seconds if you want to jump ahead. Father Galfredi was interrogated, and it was determined that he had indeed seduced and bewitched Madeline. He was found guilty of magic, sorcery, and fornication, mm-hmm. and he was publicly killed in Aix-en-Provence in 1611. Whoa. That escalated. Yes, but before being executed, he was gruesomely tortured. <laughs> During his torture, Father Gaufridi had his... Um, ankles tied together and Mm -hmm. there were weights tied to his ankles Mm -hmm. and then they tied his hands behind his back and they suspended him in the air by a rope that was attached to his wrists yes so you can just imagine oh geez uh usually this method of torture would dislocate your shoulders yeah um and they would never do it for according to wikipedia they would usually never do it for more than an hour at a time because it always resulted in death I wonder why. After he survived this torture, he was dragged through the city streets for five hours until they decided to take him to his place of execution. Mm -hmm. There, he was mercifully strangled (laughs) before he was burned at the stake. Oh, okay. Now I see why that was merciful. I was about to say, like, being strangled isn't that nice, but I guess that's better than burning alive. As he was a priest, yeah, that was merciful. Once Father Gaffredi died, Madeline was supposedly immediately free from possession. Louise, on the other hand, was not. But regardless, the two nuns were expelled from the Ursuline convent. Madeline, she recovered, but in 1642 and then again in 1652 would be accused of witchcraft both times. And it was in the second time where she was convicted and then spent the rest of her life in prison. And then died at the age of 77. That's so sad. And Louise, as I'd mentioned, was possessed um, still. And she was possessed until the day she died. 
Oh my goodness. And that is the story of the Aix-en-Provence possessions. So very, uh, not a happy ending uh, at all. No, not a happy ending at all for anybody, really. The the thing that I was thinking of um, mm-hmm. is, and I'm glad that, or if, if what I'm thinking is true, then I'm glad that the priest did receive punishment. Obviously, I wish it was not mm-hmm. torture as it was. Like, that is just awful. Um but when you had mentioned that they had sexual relations, I was thinking, and then I remember, like you said, she's 15. This was probably not consensual. She she was more than likely being molested. And the and we've, we've mentioned this before, but one of the ways that um, demons enter or start possessing a person is usually after a sexual assault or, or sexual abuse. It is a possibility. It is a good theory. I'm not sure. I'm not sure either. Well, I'm not sure if that's what caused it, but it, I mean, it, my suspicion, I think that's probably correlated because I, I mean, in my mind, Madeline was the victim. She was the victim again in the, the case with the, the priest and she mm-hmm. was a victim in the possession. I, mm-hmm. and I think it's also a victim that she was expelled from from the sisterhood like that doesn't seem very fair but i can understand their train of thought given the time period but it is just very very sad yeah the time period being early 1600s with the fact alone that she had been involved in sexual relations with a priest didn't bode well Mm -hmm. for her situation Mm -mm. so yeah i'm really glad we could end on that (laughs) note everybody yeah thanks for the bummer I'm so sorry, but hey, this is what happens when we put the scary and sad stuff at the end. Yeah. Well, um, thank you for sharing. <laughs> thank you for sharing the story, Andrea. Even though it was sad, it was very scary. And I mean, it was entertaining for sure. It was very interesting. Um, so thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, everybody, for uh, tuning in. Um, don't forget to check out our Facebook page as well as our Twitter at HIV Podcast. And if you have any stories that you would like to share with us, please send them in to hearingisbelievingpodcast at gmail.com. And like always, we'll see you guys next week. Bye, everyone. Bye.